We are in Acts chapter 16. We're going to finish chapter 16 this morning. As we have been working our way through the book of Acts, we've been, been looking at the early church, seeing the ways that God is moving, the ways that he is, is changing, the ways that God is transforming the lives of his people. And here in chapter 16, we've seen that already in, in several different ways that God is at work. Last week we talked about how we, we come into this encounter with God, how we come into this encounter with Jesus, how we come into this encounter with the Spirit. And last week we talked in chapter 16 here, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, they have, have crossed over the sea, they have, they have left Asia, they have headed into the European continent and they have landed in the city of Philippi. And when they get there, there is, not, there is not a large contingent of believers when they arrive in Philippi. In fact, there's no synagogue, there's no Jewish synagogue for them to come to and to speak in. And so on the Sabbath day, they head outside the city gates to the, to the edge of the river. And when they get there, they find, they find some women, one of whom is a woman named Lydia. And chapter 16 of Acts tells us that God opened Lydia's ears so that she might understand, so that she might hear what Paul is teaching that day and, and comes into this encounter and is changed. She already, it says, had an understanding, had a, had a belief in God, but now, now is changed. Her heart is opened and she is converted. She's baptized right there in the moment. And, and her, her, her life is different. She invites, she invites the men to come back to her house and begins to show hospitality to them. And I said last week as we talked about that, that sometimes that maybe is you. As you come into the sanctuary on Sunday mornings, as you come into an encounter with God, you are, you are attentive, you are, are ready. God is working in you and preparing you and, and making a way for you to hear and to understand the gospel. And so you come and your ears are open and your life is changed. And you wonder, how can I serve? And in what way can I serve? Much like Lydia. But the second story we looked at last week, the second part of what happens here in Luke chapter 16 is as they, as they enter into Philippi, and, and, and we don't know whether it's that same day as they, as they enter in on the Sabbath day or a week later, but, but somewhere in there, there is this girl, a slave girl, who has been paraded around town because she has the ability to, to, to understand the future. She has a spirit of divination in her. It says in Acts chapter 16. And so her owners have used her, have taken her around town and used her as a money-making device, as a kind of carnival sideshow. And on this day, she begins to follow, she begins to follow Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy around. And she says about them over and over, these men are men of the most high God and they know the way of salvation. She trumpets that. She shouts it. She yells it over and 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 over. And finally, after this has gone on for many days, Luke tells us in Acts 16, Paul finally gets tired of it and he turns to the girl and shouts at the demon in Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out. And he instantly 
instantly submits. He knows, he knows that these are men of the most high God and are leading and teaching the words of Jesus. And I said that sometimes last week, I said, sometimes that's us. Sometimes we, we come and we, we understand, we recognize Jesus. We understand the things. We can even say the right things, much like the demon did. We, we, we know enough truth. But, but we're doing it for our own ends. The, the demon was declaring the truth through the lips of the girl so that they might be able to gain credibility, do their own thing. That oftentimes that's us. We do things for our own means, for our own end. The owners of the girl as the demon is cast out are immediately upset. They've been using this girl for, for I don't know how long, but they've been using this girl as a moneymaker for them. They have taken her around. She's declared the future. She's, she's drawn interest from people. They've paid money to hear her predictions. And now the demon that was at work in her helping her to make those predictions is gone. And these owners are not happy. In fact, Luke told us, if you were here last week, you, you saw the play on words that Luke uses. It says the spirit left the girl and the money-making opportunity left the owners. And they were without hope of making any more money off of her. And they're angry and they are upset. And now that their money-making opportunity is gone, they raise a stink. They raise a ruckus. They begin to tell the magistrates in Philippi all of these things that Paul and Silas, they begin to make up things that Paul and Silas are doing and begin to raise a stink. In fact, have raised such a crowd and such a ruckus that, that now the magistrates are there and they have declared that, that Paul and Silas need a, a beating. And they receive that beating. They get thrown into prison. And we see that the response of the owners is, is anger, is revenge, is, is wanting to get even. They're, they're, they just have this anger that boils out of them because of their lost revenue because of the lost money that they're going to make off of this girl. And I said last week that sometimes that's how we, we come in. We come in to encounters with God. We come in maybe even on a Sunday morning into the sanctuary. We come begrudgingly. We'll, we'll put up with a little bit here and there. We, we won't cause a major stink until the thing that gives us life, until the thing that that gives us what we want from it until it gets thrown out or until it gets pushed on or until it gets pushed down. And then everything comes boiling out. Sometimes that's our response as well. And rarely is our response like Paul and Silas. You see it there in verse 25 of chapter 16. Their response is praying and singing and rejoicing. We're going to start there in verse 25 of chapter 16. Let's read it together. It's page 925 if you have a pew Bible this morning. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, 
so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to, have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and they have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and they apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison, visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and then departed. As we jump into this, this passage here in Acts chapter 16, I don't want us to jump in too, too quickly. I don't want us to miss what happened at the end of, of that last passage, of those, those verses before we share here, of, of Acts 16, 20 to, to 24. I think it's too easy for us to gloss over that. It's too easy for us to, to skip that part as we jump into this next section. And I don't want to gloss over it. I don't want to gloss over the direness of the circumstances that Paul and Silas are in as we jump into verse 25. Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas had just had a crowd gather around them, an angry crowd, a mob gather around them. Paul and Silas had just been charged in some kind of mock trial and given, given the punishment of a beating with rods. Paul later tells us that he was beaten 39 times, he says. 39 times beaten with rods. Then thrown in prison, but, but they tell the jailer, don't just put these guys in prison, but securely keep them. And so Luke tells us that they were hauled to the to the dungeon, basically, to the innermost part of the prison. And then, after they've been beaten 39 times with a rod, taken down into the dungeon of the prison, they're shackled and have their legs put in shackles. Commentators even tell me, I, I mentioned this last week, but they, they say these shackles were meant as, as torture devices. They would, they would be placed directly on the ankle and they would have been, been screwed down tight right around the ankle bone 
and then they would have been spread apart in such a way that, that their legs would have been spread in a way that was n- not the way your body is supposed to be contorted so that they would be under constant pressure and in constant pain. Beaten, thrown into the dungeon, shackled with tight fetters and not really knowing what was to come. That's the circumstance of Paul and Silas. Do you have a picture of it? We don't really know it, do we? I don't think, I don't think any of us have had that kind of experience, that kind of pain, that kind of torture, that kind of beating. It's hard for us to picture that. But, let me tell you this, this week, I got a paper cut. You're, you're chuckling, but it was from a file folder. It wasn't just a piece of paper. It was a, one of those thick ones right on the edge of, right on the tip of my finger right here. And it hurt for days. And when I would bump it against something, you know that you feel that sharp pain that shoots up your hand. And you shake your hand. It was a pain. And I'll tell you, that when I bumped my finger throughout the week after my file folder paper cut on the tip of my finger, I did not respond in hymn singing and rejoicing and praying. So I can't imagine, I can't imagine, actually I probably can imagine what my response might be here. And it would not be Paul and Silas's response. When we gloss over it, when we, when we gloss over what had happened to them, we fail to see the significance of their response. Their response, prayer and singing of hymns. Paul lived that. He preached it often. Their need to rejoice. Their need to sing praises to rejoice in all circumstances. In fact, you saw that, that verse on the screen this morning. And, and this is what Paul says. I'm, I'm going to read it to you. He, he, he says in, in Philippians chapter 4, in fact, if, if you saw it on the screen this morning, you, you, you see the verse, Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And if you've been in the church for a long time, you don't just read that, but you sing it as you read it, Right? You know that song? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Right? And then you clap. Rejoice, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. And we giggle as we do it, and we think, oh great, that's stuck in my head now all day. But Paul writes this in his letter to the Philippians, Philippians 4, verse 4. And when they read it later, he writes this after he has left Philippi. But the people who read this, the people in Philippi, when he says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, they're remembering this incident. They're remembering Paul and Silas 
being in prison. This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter four. I'm gonna continue on past verse four. He says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And he says in verse eight, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And in verse nine, he says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. If you've seen and heard these things in me, practice them, and the God of peace will be with you. These people in Philippi, they're reading this letter and they're remembering. Paul was beaten 39 times. He was thrown in prison. He was shackled. He was taken to the dungeon. And when he got there, his response was singing and praying and trusting in Jesus. We read through it and we gloss over it, but they know. They were there. They saw. They understood. I think as Paul and Silas sang that day, as they sang that night in the prison after midnight, that they weren't just singing personal reminders to themselves. They were declaring the greatness of God to all of those who were within hearing distance. In fact, that's what the, the scripture tells us is that they're singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening. And the prisoners were listening to them. Prisoners heard. They heard the word. And in fact, we'll talk about it in just a second. But the prisoners heard the singing. They heard the psalms. They heard the prayers that were being prayed. And they were moved. The prisoners were moved. The prisoners, I believe, were changed. And I'll tell you why in a little bit. But it's not just the hearts of the prisoners that are moved. But, as you read on, the very foundation of the prison, the earth itself, is also moved by the praises of Paul and Silas. That the creator shakes the earth God responds. God responds to the praises of his people in this moment. And the foundations are shaken. And the shackles are broken. Through the praise of God. Through his people. And what's the response in that moment? How can we... How can we see that probably the hearts of these men have been impacted and affected and, and I believe probably even changed by what they've been hearing from Paul and Silas in these moments? It's because the foundations are shaken, the doors are popped open, the shackles are off, and no one runs away. Nobody escapes. They have freedom 
but they don't take off. They all stay. They're all there. Every single one of them. Because we, we know that as you read it. We know that because the jailer wakes up to see that everything has been opened, that the, that the doors have been opened, and immediately he just assumes, he assumes that all of the prisoners are gone. He doesn't even go in to check. He doesn't even wander into the prison to see if there's anybody there. He just says, and when he, when he wakes up, he looks out the window, he comes into the jail yard. I don't know how it works, but he comes in, he sees the doors are open, and he just thinks they're, they're gone. They've escaped. No one, no one who was here would want to still be here when they had opportunity to be free. And so they're all gone. This is a short verse here in this passage and and so again it would be easy for us to gloss over it but in this moment don't gloss over this part of the story either in this moment the jailer the jailer is doomed and knows it when he comes out and he sees that his jail has been has been busted open and he assumes that everyone is gone he knows that as soon as the other authorities arrive, when they see that the jail's been opened, when they find out that all of the prisoners have escaped, he, according to Roman tradition, is going to be put to death in the same mode and manner that was used on the prisoners or that they had, had been convicted of previously. So the, the 39 lashes that Paul and Silas got the day before, they were going to be put on him the shackles the dungeon ultimately death is what he would be punished with and he knew it there was every everyone knew it and the only way that he could save face the only way that he could retain his honor was not to go through that punishment in public not to have everyone see those things happen to him he didn't want to chance that and so he knows that in this moment, I have to, before the authorities get here, before they can, can arrest me, before they can throw me in my own jail, I have to retain my honor, and the only way for me to do that is to fall on my sword. The only way for me to do that is to take my own life. The only way that I can keep any honor that I have for myself, for my family, in this in this city, the only way I can do that is to kill myself. It's easy for us to gloss over the dilemma of Paul and Silas. It's easy for us to gloss over the dilemma of this jailer who wakes up and sees that the doors of the jail are open. It's easy for us to to do that, it's easy for us to, because we, we, we've read the story. We, in, in fact, even this morning, we, we know what happens. We've read these stories. We know they're in the picture Bible. We know the end of the story. So it's easy for us to gloss over them. But it was a real dilemma. And I say that because oftentimes it's easy for us to gloss over our dilemma as well. It's easy for us not to see, not to see how bad our dilemma is, how bad our sinfulness 
is, what an affront it is to our God. The real threat, the real consequence that may have been coming to Paul and Silas, the real consequence that was coming to the jailer was death. And he knew it. Enough so that he woke up in the middle of the night, saw the jails open, and immediately began to thrust himself on his sword. Death was the real result for the jailer. It was probably, possibly going to be the real result for Paul and Silas. And it's the real result for you and I as well. Sin is not a little thing. Our sin is not something to be glossed over. Our sin is a significant issue. And it's when the jailer is facing his very real death, moments away from falling on his sword, committing suicide, that Paul cries out to him and says, don't do it. We're all here. There's no need for you to kill yourself. There's no need. Nobody has escaped. All of us have stayed. Everyone is here. There will be no punishment for you because we're all still here. No one has gone away. And in that moment for the jailer with, with a trembling heart, a racing heart, both first in fear of what was about to happen, so much so that he was going to kill himself, and now his heart is racing in relief. He says to Paul, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? He sees the grace of the moment. His life has been spared. His life has been rescued He was seconds, moments away from death and says to Paul, what must I do to be saved? Not saved from the Roman authorities. That's not what he's asking. He already has been saved from then. All the people are still there. All the prisoners are there. They haven't haven't left. He's been rescued from the Roman authorities. But now, now he's saying to Paul, what can I do for my soul? What must I do to be saved? In fact, he uses the same word that the demon just the day before had been proclaiming over and over and over. These men are of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. That word, salvation, that's the word. That's the Greek word that this man, the jailer, uses. What must I do to be saved? This man doesn't want to be rescued from his current circumstances. That's not what he's asking. He says, what must I do to be rescued from my hopelessness? What must I do to be rescued for my soul? And Paul, Paul gives this answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Simplest answer for the simplest question And yet, the most profound answer for the most profound question. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. 
There's lots of other times in scripture this same question or a similar question to like this is answered. Nicodemus asked it of Jesus, what must I do to be born again? The rich young ruler asked it of Jesus as well. And the answers are different in many of those circumstances. You have to be born again, he says to Nicodemus and, and walks him through it. He says to the rich young ruler, Jesus says, you have to give away all that, that, that you have. These are the things that you must do. When the jailer asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. His heart in that moment was ready to understand that this is all that we have to do to believe. Believe. That's all we have to do. We're not very fond of that response, though. Our preference would be that we could have a list of things that we can do something that we might give, some way that we might act. We want a checklist so that we can mark it off so that we can know. But the response from Paul, faith comes from belief. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And in that moment, in that instant, the jailer is changed. And we know that because we see his response. There is, there's the answer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And instantly as that happens, the jailer begins to show the belief is at work in his life. The belief turns to action. The man who just the day before hauled them into the dungeon, put the shackles on, put them in the deepest part of the prison, he all of a sudden now has taken them out and is treating their wounds. He now has brought them out of the prison and takes them from the dungeon and brings them into his home. He brings them to his home and feeds, him, feeds them his own food and rejoices alongside of them. Belief, redemption, rescue, all of these things are alive and at work in the jailer and that redemption has led to action. And the same is true for us. When we have been rescued and redeemed, when we have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved, we are changed as well. And that's the way that Paul talks about it over and over. Put on these things. As you throw off the old man, put on the new. Our call to worship this morning from Colossians chapter three was the same thing. These are the things that you put on as a believer. Your belief turns to action. Your belief moves to action. The rest of chapter 16 here, as it closes in the morning, the magistrates come and they give instruction for Paul and Silas to be let out of prison and to be, to, to be let go for this secret exchange to happen. And Paul, Paul says to the magistrates, tells the, the jailer to tell the magistrates, says to them, we have been publicly accused, we have been publicly beaten, we have been publicly thrown into prison, and we want to be publicly brought out and publicly released. And it's not that he's, it's not that he's trying to make a show, but Paul knows, Paul knows that what has happened in the center of the town the day before, Paul knows that the shame that was brought on the believers, on the missionaries the day before, needs to be corrected for the future of the early church, for the future of this 
Philippian church. He wants them to, to see. He wants the city themselves to see that this is, not, this is not a power trip or a shaming of the government, but it's to help the church, to set the stage for the Philippian church and for future teachers and missionaries that come. And so Paul demands that they be released. We, we can see that Paul does not make this a power trip because, because as he requires them to come and release him, and, and they do, they give their apologies, they release Paul and Silas from prison, and Paul does, decides not to set up camp. He doesn't stay in Philippi. He doesn't continue to teach. He, he heads to Lydia's house. He encourages her and any other brothers. There must be a number of people now who have come to faith in Jesus. He encourages the other brothers and then departs and continues on in his journey. He moves on. Paul is setting the stage for the early church. As we close this morning, the worship team's gonna come and lead us in worship in just a moment. But I wanna close with the same question I closed with last week. How do you come? How do you come into this encounter with Christ? How do you come into this encounter with God this morning? So the question of your heart, what must I do to be saved? Simple question with a simple answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That faith will lead to action. That faith will lead to change. But it's the simplest of questions that I hope you've asked or are asking this morning. And it has the simplest of answers. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Stand with me this morning as we worship together. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm blind. Was blind, but now I see.
comes from Colossians chapter 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. Thank you for coming this morning. I hope you can join us at the park.